So tonight is the, the season finale of Overcome Season 2. And if you have been with us, you have seen all the different kind of ins and outs of Joseph's life and the different uh, themes and topics that have come up. And tonight we're going to be discussing forgiveness round two. So if you're here last week, we talked about forgiveness and you're thinking like, Carter, can you get like a little bit more creative? Like forgiveness round two, you're just going to go right back into forgiveness. Well, yes, here's why. One, because that's what the text teaches. And so we want to be very sensitive to the text and we want to uh, share and to convey what the text is, is reminding and teaching us. But then secondly, because if you're like me, you could listen to a sermon on forgiveness every single week and still struggle with it. And so I think it's important that we have this sermon Forgiveness Round 2, because it has been a challenge to me uh, and an encouragement to me as well. If you're like me, you struggle with forgiveness, and it's a, a daily struggle. And here's why it's a daily struggle for me. Because uh, when I leave the apartment and I head off to work, I, I have, I'm in a fabulous co-working space here in Pipeline, and I, I walk to work throughout Brickell. I have to forgive somebody every single, every single day. Here's what happens. I'm walking, and there's a thing called a pedestrian crosswalk. Do you know what this is? And you get to it, and you have the right-of-way as a pedestrian, so you start to walk. But cars don't know this here. They don't believe that pedestrian crosswalks exist. And so they come flying up at you as you're walking, but I don't panic. I walk, and I let them know. I give them the face. Here's the face. <laughs> Just like that. No, you need to stop. I'm forgiving you, but you're in the wrong Right? There's another thing that I have to forgive is people on scooters. Anyone here ride scooters? Don't raise your hand. Because, listen, here's the deal with scooters. If you've been in Brickell, you know that apparently when you own a scooter, you have no rules. There's no laws. They do not apply to you. You can drive on the sidewalk. You can go opposite way of traffic. You can run through a bush. You can do whatever you want on a scooter. I didn't know. That's why I'm thinking about getting a scooter. So I almost get killed on a weekly basis. I have to forgive the scooter driver. You know, he's bringing food somewhere. He's trying to get to work. And it's like, you know what? Okay, just let it go. I also have to forgive the person at Zook every single time that I go. Have you been to Zook, the Mediterranean place over here? Here's what happens. I go. I get my power greens mixed with my rice. I'm real excited. I get my hummus. And then I get to the, the protein. And I say chicken. Here's what happens every single time. They take the, the ladle and they scoop out a big thing of chicken and they start shaking the chicken off the ladle. I'm like, no, 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 just scoop it and put it on the bowl. It's perfect. But then they shaking all the chicken off. And I'm like, why are you doing that? So I have to forgive them. The, the fourth place that I forgive every single week is Starbucks. Here's why. I like going to Starbucks. You know, their coffee is, is okay, but I like the app because I get the stars. It makes me feel good. So I go there, I get the app, I get the Starbucks, and they say, what is your name? Because I'm not giving them my credit card, right? So I say, my name is Carter. So they go, I'm waiting, and here's what happens a couple minutes later. Carlos? <laughs> Carlos? I'm looking around, and I'm like, I'm, I'm sure that's me again. You know, so I, I, and Starbucks, I'm just going to be Carlos. You know, it's much easier than having to forgive them. One time at Starbucks, I was called Burger. Yeah, because apparently my name Carter sounds a lot like Burger. You know, but there's these small things, right? These small things that happen. Maybe they irk you or it's a pet peeve and you can, you can forgive and you can let go. But there's big things, right? And if you were with us last week or if you're just joining us this week, when you hear the word forgiveness, you typically think of those big things, that you're carrying, that you're feeling, that bitterness, that relationship, that dysfunction, that thing that happened to you, and you're feeling the weight of that. And it's easy to laugh about simple things, but the heavy things are much more difficult to forgive. 
And we pick up the story with, with Joseph here many years later. And what we saw last week is he gathered his brothers together. He didn't reveal himself right away. And his brothers are before him. And he says, I am Joseph. And then here are the first words out of his mouth. He says, do not be dismayed or angry with yourself over what you have done because God used it for good to preserve life. His brothers, if you've been with us, his brothers sold him into slavery when he was 17 years old. They were thinking about killing him. They decided, no, let's make some money off of him. Sold him into slavery. They finally get reunited after 20 plus years. And he looks at them and he forgives them by saying, do not be dismayed or distressed or angry at what you have done. Because God is the one that actually sent me here to preserve life. God turned what you have done, which was evil, into good. And so what happened after that was... Pharaoh uh, gets word that Joseph uh, has his family in town, that his brothers are there. And, and Pharaoh's excited because Pharaoh and Joseph are really, really close. And you can tell that because Pharaoh sends all these wagons and all this stuff to Joseph's brothers. And he says, listen, uh, if you're Joseph's family, then we want to take care of you here in Egypt. So, so take all the wagons, all the stuff during the famine, go back home to Canaan, get your dad, get everybody, and come back, and we're going to give you some of the best land in Egypt. And so the brothers leave. All 11 of them, they head back, and they, they come to their father, Jacob, and they begin to tell Jacob what happened. They say, listen, uh, yeah, we're all back. I know you were nervous Benjamin wasn't going to return, and you thought you'd never see Simeon again, but we're all back. And we have all these wagons and, and Joseph is alive. Remember when we told you that he was killed by an animal, now you're realizing that was a lie. We sold him into slavery. He was in Egypt, and now he's the governor of Egypt, the second most powerful man really in the entire world. And he wants us to return because it's not good for us to stay in Canaan. The, the famine is severe, so you, we need to go back there. They're going to give us some great land. And, and Jacob is like really confused right now. He's like, are they lying again? How'd they get all these wagons? And after he begins to hear the story, he is overjoyed because he realizes they're telling the truth. And they gather up everyone, and it's 70 people in total in the family, and they leave Canaan, and they take all their stuff, and they come to Egypt. And they meet Joseph there, and you can imagine that moment, right, where Joseph and his father are reunited. The text actually says that when they hugged each other, they held each other for a good while, Tears and joy all just pouring out in this moment where Jacob believed his son to be dead and he's alive and they're reunited and, and they're there in Egypt. And Joseph looks at his family and he says, here's the deal. You're going to settle in this area called Goshen. It's the best of all the land. It's in the delta of the Nile and it's really good for shepherding, which is perfect because we're a shepherding family. So we're going to settle there. You're going to settle there and you're going to enjoy the fruits and the benefits of Egypt, even during this famine. So they settle there, and they, they set up camp, and they live there. And Joseph goes back to his job, because he's the governor over all of Egypt. And he has to kind of establish and run and maintain this rationing system to care for everybody. And it gets more complicated. Uh, he doesn't change the plan, but he begins to figure out, how do I care for everyone? How do I feed everyone? And really, Joseph is like the perfect employee. Because as he's caring for the people, he's also accumulating assets and resources for Pharaoh, his boss. He's young, he's driven, he's wise, and he's loyal. And as this is all playing out, the, the years progress. And the family now 
has been in Egypt for 17 years. 17 years they've been in Goshen, and, and Joseph has continued to be governor. And then Jacob is near the end of his life. And Jacob asks Joseph to come near, and he says, listen, I'm going to ask you to promise me something. When I die, which is going to be soon, will you promise me that you will not bury me here in Egypt, but you'll bury me in Canaan, the land of my family, where my family is buried, and and our forefathers. And and Joseph agrees. And so Jacob is about to die, and he gathers all the brothers together, the 12 brothers, which will be the 12 tribes of Israel, and he dispenses blessings on them. It says that he dispenses a blessing that is suitable for each. So each brother gets a blessing, and then it says that Jacob breathed his last breath. And the whole family now gathers up their caravans and their wagons, and they leave Egypt, and they go to Canaan, and they bury their father in the same cave where his wife Leah is buried, but also the same cave where Abraham and Sarah are buried, and Isaac and Rebekah are buried. And after they've mourned and buried their father, the family heads back to Egypt to resettle and to continue their life there in the land of Goshen. This is where the text picks up tonight. After their father has died and they've come back to Egypt to continue their life forward. And here's what it says in verse 15. When the brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, 17 years ago, Joseph stood before his brothers, as we saw last week, and he forgave them. He said, do not be distressed or angry at what you have done because God has used it for good. God actually sent me to Egypt to preserve life, including your life. But this whole time, the brothers have been really confused because the forgiveness makes no sense on the surface. Why in the world would Joseph forgive them? They sold him into slavery. And so the whole time, they've kind of created this plan thinking the reason that Joseph forgave us was because of dad. Because he wanted to be reunited with dad and because he knew that if he killed us or he enslaved us or he put us in prison, it would crush our dad. But now that dad is dead, we're in trouble. Now that dad is dead, Joseph is going to come after us. We're going to reap what we sowed now almost 40 years ago. And so they sent a message in verse 16 to Joseph, and here's what they said. Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So they're sitting there trying to figure out what they do, what they're going to do, because they they don't believe that Joseph's forgiveness is authentic that it was probably because of dad. And so this is their only play. So they said, listen, let's gather together. We're going to send a message to Joseph and say, listen, we talked to dad without you. You weren't there. And he told us that you need to forgive us. And so this message gets delivered to Joseph. And this is most likely a fabrication because we have no historical uh, information or data to back it up. All we see here is that they're fearful. And out of their fears, they fabricate this message that their father gave them. And so the message is delivered to Joseph. And this is what happens when Joseph hears the message. It says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He hears the message and he starts to weep. Why? 
Because he realizes now, for the past 17 years, his brothers have been walking on eggshells around him. They've been doubting his forgiveness. They didn't think it was authentic. They thought the only reason Joseph is forgiving us is because dad is still here. And now that dad's gone, we need to figure out some way to save our necks. He, all he wanted to do was be reconnected with his family, to have a healthy relationship with his brothers, reconciliation and healing, and now he's realizing in the moment that for the past 17 years, it has been completely inauthentic. It hasn't been real. And so he weeps. He weeps for his relationship with his brothers, but he also weeps for their soul and for their heart. Because as he told them before, the reason he's forgiving them is not because they've earned it, and it's not because of dad. It's because of no one and nothing else. The only reason he is forgiving them is because of God. Because God has forgiven him, because God has been merciful to him, because God has been with him, and because God has been using all of this for his good plan. Therefore, he is going to forgive because of God, not because of them or anyone else. But they don't get it. They don't see it. They can't grasp it. They can't understand how Joseph would forgive and why he would forgive. They don't see God's good plan in this whole measure. All they can see is right, what's right in front of them. The forgiveness makes no sense. It must be because of dad. Now dad is gone. So we need to figure out a way to save our necks. Hopefully he'll buy this message and we'll be okay. Their vision is completely man-centered. It is horizontal. It is not vertical at all. They do not have a God-centered vision whatsoever. They're just looking at things on the surface. And so his brothers in verse 18, now they've, they've come and they've fallen down before him. And they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, here's how it reads. It's like this. They, they come into the room. They're standing before Joseph. They fall to their knees and they're, they're about to unload this whole explanation, Right? We're your servants. Again, we're so sorry for what happened almost 40 years ago now. Dad told us, please. And Joseph stops him right there. And he says, no, stop. Stop. And he says, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? See, they're treating him. The brothers are treating Joseph like he's God. He's their judge. He's the one to be feared. His decision and his feelings and his forgiveness is all that matters. And Joseph is looking at his brothers and he's saying, am, am I God? Am I in the place of God? He's challenging their vision, right? He's saying, listen, your vision is so completely focused on me and yourself and what you've done and what I'm going to do that you have completely missed the whole point. You have completely missed God in this equation. You're actually treating me like I'm God. And he says to them, do not be afraid. And, and in verse 20, he says, And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is now the second time that he's had to forgive all of them together and I think this is actually more powerful. As he looks at them and he says, listen, I forgave you the first time and you didn't see it because you're so focused on yourself 
And you're so focused on what you can see around you and what makes sense to you logically that you completely miss God in the equation. But I'm going to tell you again now, I am not God. I'm not in his place. And I'm going to forgive you again because you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. Stop looking at me. Stop looking at yourself and look at God and what he has done. And then he couples this forgiveness with a promise. He says, you don't have to fear because not only have I forgiven you, but I'm going to provide for you and your family. And then he comforts them. You see, this is a very unusual forgiveness, right? You can sense that. You can feel that as you read it. Like, wow, can you imagine forgiving your brothers that sold you into slavery, that hated you, and yet he does. And what we saw last week was that the source of his forgiveness was God. It wasn't that they earned it. It wasn't because of dad. It wasn't because he's really moral and really strong. He's just a forgiving person. The source of his forgiveness was God, but we have to dig a little bit deeper, right? Because it's one thing to say, God has forgiven me, therefore I'm going to forgive others. It's one thing to say that, right? When you're driving in traffic and someone cuts you off, be like, I'm going to forgive you because God has forgiven me. Even that's hard. Like that's almost impossible for me right there. It's one thing to say it in the simple ways. God has forgiven me, so I'm going to forgive the scooter driver. I'm going to forgive Zook, chicken person. I'm going to forgive Starbucks, Carlos. Like, I'm just going to, you know, it's, it's one thing to say it there. It's another thing to actually forgive when you've been betrayed and when you've been ridiculed and when you've been abused and when you've been threatened, when you face serious dysfunction. It is really difficult to forgive then. Really difficult to simply just say, God's forgiven me, therefore I'm going to forgive. That is hard and here's what is true. And maybe you've felt this. Maybe you've experienced this. What happens is, is we have this, these pain and these wounds that have accumulated, this bitterness, right? Over those really hard things that have happened. And then we come oftentimes to the church and to those in the church and we share our wounds and our pain and our suffering. And here's what can happen. Don't worry. God works everything for good. He has a plan. His ways are higher than your ways. You can't see, you can't see his reasons, but he's got reasons. It's going to be okay. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard that before? I know I've heard it. I'm sure I've probably said that before as my first response. See, it's a quick fix solution. Here's why. Sometimes it's well-meaning because when someone shares their pain and their struggle and their bitterness and what's happened to them and their, their difficulty to actually forgive and to release what's happened, sometimes you don't know how to respond, right? You, you can't relate. And so the only thing you know to do is to share something that is true, that God is working good for those that love him, that God has a plan and, and, and to trust him. It's well-meaning, but sometimes we share it because we don't really want to deal with the pain and the suffering and the wounds of that person because we know it's going to take a lot of time, it's going to take a lot of tears, and it's going to be a lot. So it's much easier to give kind of a, a quick fix solution and just kind of wipe our hands and, and be done. It's much easier to do that sometimes. But that's not 
emblematic of these verses that share this, these verses that, that declare this beautiful truth that God is working good in your life if you love him, that God has a plan, that God has ways and reasons that are above yours and you can't see them and you have to trust them. These are beautiful verses, wonderful verses, and we need to remind ourselves of them and we need to believe in them and we need to trust in them. But life is like a puzzle, It's being built together piece by piece by piece by God. And we don't see the box art. We don't know what he's building. We can't see the plan. The only thing that we can do is deal with the puzzle piece that we're currently holding. That's the only thing that we can do. Instead, we oftentimes say to people when they're holding their puzzle piece that's really painful and it hurts a lot and it's really kind of tearing apart their heart and there's bitterness and it's hard to forgive and we look at people and we remind them of the box art that they can't see and we can't see either. It's important to remember it and to trust in it, but we have to deal with the pain of the puzzle piece that we're holding in the moment too. We have to hold on to it. Look what Joseph says here. When he looks at his brothers for the second time, he says, you meant evil against me but God used it for good. He doesn't say to them, I forgive you, it's okay, God's used everything for good, it's it's all worked out in the end. He lets them know that they have inflicted evil upon him. He's sharing his wounds. He's sharing his pain, that it was incredibly hurtful what they did. Tempted murder, deciding to instead make some money off of him and sell him to slavery really hurt. <laughs> and we also know that because almost every single interaction that we see with Joseph with his brothers, once he's in Egypt, he's crying. Almost every single time he has to leave the room and he turns away and he starts to cry because there's a lot of pain and there's there's some deep wounds that are involved when he's around his brothers because of what happened, because of what they've done. At one point, it says that he cries so loudly that all of Egypt can hear him. I mean, these are wounds. He's not mitigating the pain. He's not downplaying it. But in that, as he's processing it, as he's dealing with it, he's reminding himself of the beautiful truth that God has, and he will transform evil into good. But see, here's what we see in the life of Joseph, and here's what we see in all those other verses as well that speak about God's good plan, is that it's God's job to transform evil into good. It is our job to hold on to the puzzle piece that we've been currently given and to deal with it and to process the pain and to feel it, or to say it like Joseph, is to recognize and to deal with the evil that has happened, but at the same time trust that God is gracious and good. There's a, a case that's, I guess it's almost over now. Uh, you've probably been following the case of Larry Nassar, right? You've seen it in the news. The American gymnast physician that molested more than 150 girls. It's absolutely horrible. He's been convicted now of up to 175 years in prison. And woman after woman has come out and bravely shared their story and shared their experience. And it's actually stood before him in the court as they've read their statements. And one of those women was 
was Rachel Denhollander, who was actually the first woman to accuse him. She's the one that started all of this, that got him convicted and is now bringing healing to over 150 women as this gets resolved and as they move forward. And she spoke about her pain and the wounds and the evil that was inflicted upon her and how that affected her. And then she said this. She said, one of the things that made it really hard was that as I was going through it, when I went to the church and my friends in the church, I didn't find support. I didn't find people to listen. Instead, she was given oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes a quick fix solution that God's working out a good plan and she's dealing with deep wounds and serious evil that was inflicted upon her. Here's what she said. She said, those are very good and glorious biblical truths that God works good. But when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. That is powerful. They are glorious and profound and important truths that God is working good in your life, that the box art of your life is going to be spectacular, and God is putting it together piece by piece, and you can trust him in that. These are important truths to hold on to. But when you use that to downplay the pain of the evil and the horror and the wounds and the suffering that you're going through, it ultimately dampens the goodness of God. And what we see in the life of Joseph in his example is that we're not to downplay the evil. We're to deal with it. We're to process. We're we're to listen to others. We're to mourn with others. We're to cry for justice with others. We're to recall God's mercy with others. And then as we've done those first few steps that are so important, then we remind others and ourselves of the glorious truth that God is working all things for good for those that love him. You see, in order for us to move on from pain and bitterness to freedom and healing, you cannot neglect the first steps. You can't neglect the listening and the mourning and the crying for justice and the recalling of God's mercy in your life and jump straight to the quick fix solution that God has a good plan. You need to arrive there You need to hold on to that. But it's not the first step. See, in Joseph's story, when the brothers come to him, and that first encounter when he's standing before them, he does not reveal himself. We talked about that. The brothers are, are sitting down before him. He doesn't say, hey guys, I'm Joseph. Hello, I'm alive. And don't worry, I forgive you. He waits. There's this whole plan that is unfolding. It takes him some time to reveal himself. We don't know why. Maybe he wasn't ready to reveal himself right then. Maybe he needed more time to process and to deal with the pain of what they have done. And now he's standing before them and he never could have expected that. We also know that as he has kept his identity in, that not only did he need time, but through many, many tears, he was ultimately led to forgiveness. He's turning away and crying. He leaves the room and he's crying as he's face to face with his brothers. But through that time and through those tears, he trusted God and his mercy. 
And that enabled him to go before his brothers and to say, I'm Joseph, and I forgive you. Because you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. In fact, God was the one that has been writing my story. He's the one that sent me here to preserve life. But he did not skip the first few steps. It took time, and it took tears, and it took trust in God to arrive at forgiveness. But most of all, and this is what I hope we walk away with tonight, it not only took time, not only took tears, it not only took trust, to arrive at forgiveness, it took God's grace. It took God's grace in his heart and his mind for him to not see the biggest problem in his life being the brothers that are in front of him and what he was going to do with them. You see, we would have completely understood if Joseph looked at his brothers and said, you know what? I'm not going to forgive you. We would have understood that because it's a natural reaction I mean, every problem in his life is because of them. If he stood in front of his brothers and said, listen, you separated me from my family. You created in me a a difficulty to trust people after my own brothers sold me into slavery. You destroyed my youth. You sent me to a hard life. And you know what? God rescued me. And I'm grateful to God for rescuing me, but I'm angry at you. And I'm not going to forgive you. I want you to feel that. But he doesn't do that. Through time and through tears and through trust in God and God's grace and his heart and his mind, he looks at his brothers and he says, I forgive you. You meant evil against me. I'm not downplaying that. But God used it for good. This is the heart of Joseph's forgiveness is God's grace to him. Paul Tripp says this, if you are able to convince yourself that your biggest problems are outside of you and not inside of you, you are no longer interested in God's grace. You see, Joseph was fixed on God's grace. Every time he talks, he is not speaking about himself or the brothers. He is constantly speaking about God. He's saying, God has been merciful to me. God has been with me through every season This is God's plan he's been unfolding. God has transformed evil and made it good. He's constantly declaring God's grace over his life and the way that God has been so generous to him, the way that God has worked in his life. He's not talking about himself and he's not talking about others. See, the biggest problem for Joseph was not the brothers. It was his own heart. And that's why he's constantly declaring what God has done in his life. If God has been merciful, and if God has been forgiving, then how could I withhold mercy and forgiveness? He's processing as he looks at his brothers. If, If God has provided for me, how could I not provide for my brothers? But he is not only concerned with his own heart to release bitterness and to forgive his brothers because it's good for his own soul, but he's also concerned about their heart and their soul, which is why he is constantly looking at his brothers and saying, you need to take your vision off of me and off of you and turn your attention to God. It is God. You meant evil, but God transformed it into good. He's not downplaying the evil, but he's turning their attention to God. I was reading um, the entire statement this week from Rachel Denhalander as she's standing in the courtroom 
She's looking at her abuser. And she reads this statement. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, this is like Joseph. Because Rachel was fixated on God's grace. And it's what enabled her to forgive. I want to read an excerpt from her statement. Listen to her words as she looks at her abuser. And she says this. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible. This is, she's speaking about Larry Nasser. Into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself lovingly so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By this grace, I too choose to love this way. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Could you imagine? That is unbelievable. That is like Joseph. Joseph standing before his brothers as she stands before her abuser and she directs all of the attention as Joseph did to God. I want you to see God. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at me. I want you to see the forgiveness of God and because I know the forgiveness of God and God's grace to me, because of that, I can forgive you. See, power of forgiveness is not only the releasing of bitterness in your heart, but it's also how it frees you. See, what happens when you hold in bitterness and you're unwilling to forgive? It's like you're carrying a a backpack. And every single time something happens to you, it's like taking a stone and putting it in the backpack. Some Some things are small stones, and you put it in. But there are some things that are big, and they are heavy. And you put them in. And what happens over time as you hold on and you are unwilling to to focus on God's grace and release your bitterness and to forgive, the bag gets heavier and heavier and heavier and eventually it gets so heavy you can't move. You're just stuck. You can't move forward. But not only can you not move forward, it's also the only thing you can think about. All you can think about are the stones on your back. It's the only thing that is your vision, is yourself and your wounds and your pain. You can't see anything around you. You certainly can't see what God is doing in and through you because you're focused on the stones in the bag. And in order to drop the bag and move on, you have to come to experience the grace of God and you have to remind yourself of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that The gospel, which is the good news, is that you are forgiven and you are loved and you are accepted no matter what you've done or no matter what's been done to you. Because Jesus has willingly given up his life to pay the penalty of sin and death that you and me, we all deserve. 
The gospel is this. Jesus took the bag. He took the bag off your shoulders. Not only all the things that you're carrying, but all the stones that you've thrown at other people. He took that too. And he put it on his shoulders and he dealt with it. And he paid for it. And now it's gone. It feels like it's there, but it's gone. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're loved. You are free. You see, the gospel, it rescues you from a vision of me, myself, and I. What's in the bag? And it gives a vision of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's what the gospel does. It enables you to see that the biggest problems in your life are not those things outside of you. They're the things inside. The anger and the bitterness and the rage and the sin and the hatred. And as you begin to release these things and give these things to God, trusting in his grace, you will see God grant you strength. It will take time, it will take tears, and it will take trust. But God will give you strength to let go of the bitterness and to forgive. And it will be healing. And I, I, I pray also, as you encounter others in your life and in this church, as they bring their stones, as they share their pain and their wounds, that we would be a church that doesn't give quick fix solutions. That we listen and we mourn and we cry and we help to recall God's mercy and his grace. And then after some time, we remind people of the great and glorious biblical truth that God is working good in their life. I could say it like this. That this would be a church where we deal with the heart before we deal with the circumstances. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for us as a family. As we seek to move forward, releasing bitterness and forgiving. Let's pray.